This is the In Focus podcast from The Hindu. Hello and welcome to this edition of The Hindu's In Focus podcast. I'm Sriram Lakshman, The Hindu's US correspondent and your host for today. There's been a flurry of activity in the foreign policy space over the last two weeks. In the second week of March, President Biden hosted Prime Minister Modi, Prime Minister Suga of Japan and Prime Minister Morrison of Australia at the first ever summit-level quad meeting. Last week, US Secretary of State Tony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin visited Tokyo and Seoul as part of their first foreign trip. Defense Secretary Austin then visited New Delhi, where he met Prime Minister Modi, Defense Minister Rajnath Singh and National Security Advisor Ajit Doval. Mr. Austin then made an unannounced visit to Afghanistan, where the US is trying to finalize a peace settlement. Mr. Blinken went on to Anchorage, Alaska, where he and US National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan held their first bilateral meeting with their Chinese counterparts. All these interactions and relationships are deeply interconnected. To help us unpack some of these events and to discuss the future trajectory of the India-US relationship under the Biden administration, we have with us today Professor Joshua T. White. Dr. White is Associate Professor of the Practice of South Asia Studies and Fellow at the Edwin O. Reichau Center for East Asia Studies at Johns Hopkins SAIS. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. Dr. White previously served at the White House as Senior Advisor and Director for South Asian Affairs in the Obama Administration's National Security Council, where he staffed the President and National Security Advisor on a range of South Asia policy issues related to the Indian subcontinent and led efforts to integrate U.S. government policy across South and East Asia. Josh, welcome and thanks for joining us today. Great to be with you. So you were Senior Advisor and Director for South Asia and the Obama National Security Council. Um, Now we have another Democratic administration. Uh, This administration has repeatedly signaled and stated that they are re-engaging with the world and that they are aware that the world has changed since the Obama administration and American retrenchment, as it were. From a geopolitical perspective, what are the most significant ways in which the world has changed over the last four years? You know, it is reassuring that the Biden team not only uh, uh, seems very conscious of the fact that they're entering a different geopolitical environment than they uh, left four years ago, but that they're doing so publicly. And there are some significant changes. Uh, The first, I think, is that we see significant democratic backsliding around the world, uh, including uh, challenges here at home in the United States that we're uh, actively wrestling through. Um, We see a growing Chinese assertiveness on the world stage, but also uh, a number of episodes in which China has used its uh, uh, political leverage, its economic leverage, or its military to uh, engage in coercion in ways that are uh, troubling to, uh, to the United States and, and its friends. Uh, I think we're seeing a, a rising skepticism about the longstanding uh, so-called Washington, Washington consensus on free trade. Uh, you know, there, there is a deep skepticism about um, 
sort of open trading regime and its its differential uh, impact on different communities within the United States, its contribution to inequality. Uh, and uh, it, I think in response to that, uh, rising attention given to the linkages between foreign policy and domestic policy in the United States, with two domains that you know have always had connections, but were seen as uh, distinct uh, spheres of policymaking to to some extent. Um, and uh, you know, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, has been at the at the forefront of uh, of articulating this view. But the fact that you have uh, you know, my former boss, Susan Rice leading the Domestic Policy Council, um, I, I think is uh, even further evidence that uh, there, this sort of linkage is worth um, is worth dealing with. Um, and fourth, you know, I, I do think that the world sees the United States somewhat differently after four years of Trump. Uh, there are uh, concerns about American reliability, about the uh, policy stability that the rest of the world can expect from Washington. Uh, and those are not things that can be quickly glossed over or that just go away. I think those are uh, significant features of the geopolitical landscape that uh, those of us in Washington who are thinking about U.S. engagement will, will have to confront. So uh, global democratic recession, China, trade, foreign policy, and its linkages to domestic policy. We'll get to some of these um, shortly. I want to first go to a paper you recently wrote titled After the Foundational Agreements, an Agenda for U.S.-India Defense and Security Cooperation. In this paper, you've suggested that the Biden administration ought to broaden the U.S.-India relationship, that the Trump administration had perhaps overemphasized the security and defense aspect of it. How do you see the defense-non-defense balance in the relationship evolving over the next four years, given what we know so far about the Biden administration's work program? You know, it, it's a great question. And um, for any of your readers who have a, a wonky interest in uh, U.S.-India defense policy, I'd recommend my, my paper for those of you that, uh, that don't. You know, it does go into the weeds. My, uh, yeah, I got some uh, some funny comments from a few of my friends as they were looking at this paper. They said, you know, you're writing a paper about U.S.-India defense policy, and one of your key observations is that uh, the United States has put too much weight on the defense aspect of its relationship with, with, with India. Uh, and there is, in fact, that contradiction uh, at the heart of the paper. My assessment that uh, the uh, defense and security basket of issues uh, has really become the the principal load-bearing pillar in the U.S.-India relationship over the last four years, in a way that's not healthy and not sustainable. Now, a lot of uh, there's been a lot of positive developments uh, in U.S.-India defense during the Trump administration, and as a former Obama official, I'm uh, very happy to to give kudos and credit to the Trump team that continued to make this a, a real priority. But I do expect that the Biden administration is is and ought to make significant efforts to rebroaden the relationship to a more sustainable array of issues. So, uh, for example, I think there will be a return to a significant focus on climate and clean energy as a topic for bilateral engagement. This in will include research and development on clean tech, uh, climate finance. And I think importantly, uh, focus on uh, cooperative efforts toward climate resilience. I think there uh, is certain to be a considerable focus on health security, which has been part of U.S.-India dialogue in the past uh, through the global health security agenda and, and other venues. 
But in the world of COVID-19, there's already cooperation on the table with respect to vaccine production. I think there will be deeper conversations on epidemic surveillance and and other things that, um, you know, where the United States can together play a global leadership role. Uh, You know, the the trade issues will continue to be difficult uh, given uh, the proclivities of the of the Indian government, which are uh, have been pr- protectionist in nature, uh, and also as I as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the Biden administration looks at the global trade regime and uh, is skeptical about the uh, you know traditional efforts to to ratchet down tariffs as an end in themselves. So I think we should be realistic about what's possible here. I do think the Biden team has been very clear that they are focused on technology, on uh, data standards, on uh, technology norms, on artificial intelligence and cooperation on cyber issues. So even if some of the traditional trade issues, uh, trading goods and manufacturing uh, moves forward slowly, I think in some of these other other domains uh, and in services, we could see some progress. So in your paper, Josh, you do give some credit to the Trump administration for being diligent in pursuing the strengthening of some aspects of the U.S.-India relationship. Uh, But during the Trump administration, we also saw other developments, and you alluded to this uh, early on in this podcast when you talked about China's growing assertiveness. Is it fair to say that a strengthening of the India-U.S. relationship was a gift China unwittingly gave both countries? How much did the border conflict between India and China contribute to a strengthening of ties and a renewal of the Quad? You know, we saw the first uh, summit-level meeting of the Quad just about 10 days ago. I think it was undoubtedly significant. There's a tendency here in Washington, um, and maybe in a similar way in Delhi, to look at China, uh, to see a confident rising power, um, a country that has quite opaque decision-making and ambitious rhetoric about where it wants to be in 2035 and 2050, and attribute to the Chinese leadership some kind of uh, exquisite long-term master plan um, to carry out this vision of China's rise. Uh, and I, I think there's a way in which we can really overestimate the, uh, the, the competence and the, the, you know, the ability of the Chinese to, to sort of confidently execute this. You know, much of what we've seen over the last uh, few years uh, with respect to Chinese foreign policy has been quite counterproductive for China. China does not have many close friends in the region to begin with, but it has been alienating countries around its periphery. Uh, it has been causing uh, consternation through its political and, and economic coercion, and it has been spurring various kinds of balancing by other countries. We see this, as, as you suggested uh, uh, just a moment ago, with the Quad, um, with deepened trilateral engagements in the region. Um, so in some ways, I think that it the growing uh, uh, alignment and depth of cooperation between the United States and India uh, is very much a product of Chinese overreach along the border, but also uh, China's significant uh, investments in maritime expeditionary capabilities, China's uh, political and economic engagement with countries throughout the Indian Ocean region. Um, there are, you know, it's an open question. Uh, even for uh, for academics who uh, who try to unpack this as to why China is doing things that 
may seem tactically advantageous, but strategically seem counterproductive. And we just don't know. Is this a play for domestic politics within China? Does this have to do with factional, uh, various fa- uh, contending factions within the Chinese system? Is this a, a sort of systemic misjudging of, uh, of, of China's uh, environment? Uh, it's hard to say, but I, I do think it's clear that, um, that the Chinese assertiveness has provided an impetus for deeper U.S.-India engagement in a way that was uh, hard to imagine, certainly uh, 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago. So uh, let's stay with this theme for a moment. Uh, can the Quad match the Belt and Road Initiative in terms of infrastructure financing? Uh, in my discussions with U.S. officials in the previous administration, the response went, response went something like, well, this is private sector-led development, not state-managed financing, as in the case of the Belt and Road Initiative. But there's a sense that, you know, we're not seeing a match to China's financing capabilities in the region. Uh, and we won't. Uh, we won't be able to. We don't mobilize capital in the same way that the Chinese do. Uh, even working alongside partners like Japan, um, uh, which we are doing and probably can do more of, um, you know, we can uh, we can do more collaboratively to provide um, financing and infrastructure options to countries in the region, but we probably won't be able to match what China does. Uh, we are also uh, play by a different set of rules. Uh, unless there is a clear business case for a deal, uh, we, the Japanese and our friends, are not likely to move forward with it. Uh, China doesn't always operate that way. They're sometimes willing to make investments for uh, more political reasons or as loss leaders uh, for future kinds of engagement. So there are limits to what we can do. I, I do think that we, and here again, I would give the Trump administration some credit, uh, have done a good job about raising awareness in the region about the risks that come with taking Chinese investment and taking on uh, uh, Chinese debt. Um, this has been a message that has been targeted uh, not only to uh, to popular opinion in the region, helping the the, the members of uh, countries uh, across the region um, ask good questions of their leaders about what these projects might mean, but also targeted toward the leaders. And I think this raises awareness and it also raises uh, legitimate questions. It raises the costs of Chinese engagements because they have to contend with Questions about the fiscal and environmental sustainability of their uh, their investments. So the short answer, I guess, is that we will work with our friends to uh, to provide options to countries that might be particularly vulnerable to Chinese influence or coercion, but that we're not likely to play the same game in the same way because of the the ways in which the United States uh, private sector um, operates. Um, uh, you know, rather independently of the U.S. government and provides you know, enormous investment and value throughout the region. So let's come to some very recent news from the weekend when Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was in New Delhi. This is the first time the Defense Secretary has visited India on his first foreign trip. What is your assessment of the visit? I think that the trip itself, the timing, uh, the way it was made, uh, tells an important story. Uh, it speaks to Asia's centrality in the Biden team's uh, set of global priorities. 
Um, it also, I think, provides a nice uh, uh, counter to the view that Secretary Austin, who has very significant background in, in the Middle East and was CENTCOM commander, uh, is someone who is uh, focused on the Middle East rather than on uh, the administration's uh, stated um, Asia priorities. Um, I think, you know, I I was not surprised that there were not a lot of uh, substantive readouts about the uh, the particular uh, agreements or plans going forward, but the public comments did provide some teasers about the kinds of substantive cooperation we might expect going forward. Um, operationalizing the foundational agreements on logistics, communication, security, and uh, geographic um, uh, information sharing. Uh, there was a comment about cooperation in emerging sectors of defense, which I very much hope um, uh, intimates that that both countries are going to work on uh, R&D in cutting edge areas um, uh, rather than uh, on legacy type systems. Uh, there was talk about defense technology cooperation, which is uh, ongoing and some conversation about deeper Indian engagement with the, the various combatant commands um, that cover the Indian Ocean region. So for our first visit, I thought this was positive and successful. It set the right tone. Uh, the optics were good, and it communicated a, a broader message about the kind of attention we can expect the, the Indo-Pacific generally, uh, and hopefully uh, India um, in particular, to receive uh, over the coming couple of years. You know, uh, India's defense minister, Rajnath Singh, said to the press that he and uh, Lloyd Austin uh, discussed pursuing enhanced cooperation uh, with the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, Central Command, and Africa Command. Now, India getting involved with Central Command and Africa Command, that's new, isn't it? And how significant is it? Well, there have been have been interactions between the Indian military and CENTCOM in the past, particularly with uh, NAVCENT, which is the Navy component um, of Central Command. But this uh, this comment was a good development. I mean, the reality is that India spends a lot of its time thinking and acting west uh, toward uh, what we call uh, the Middle East or the Gulf, and, and what it, uh, our Indian friends call West Asia. Uh, and that this is <clears throat> this is an area that uh, that is really an Indian priority. Um, so th it's positive that there's greater interaction, uh, going to be greater interaction with these other commands. Now, at the same time, I would say I think outsiders uh, who look at the U.S. defense system, which is huge and complex, uh, tend to overestimate the complications that arise from the the seams between the combatant commands. You know, the, the, the India-Pakistan um, border is the theme between uh, Indo-PACOM and CENTCOM, and that has been a challenge in the past. But the themes in the Indian Ocean um, with Central Command, Africa Command, and Indo-Pacific Command uh, don't run along areas where, there are, where they complicate um, already complex security problems. Uh, and in my view, you have to put this theme somewhere, and uh, uh, these, that's a reasonable place for it uh, to be. And it's great that India is engaging broadly with the geographic commands that are um, that are operating there. Um, I would also hope that India uh, comes to recognize the value of having a permanent liaison 
at Indo-Pacific Command in Hawaii, which, of course, uh, Hawaii seems very far away from India, and it is, but Indo-PACOM uh, has uh, played such an important role in thinking broadly about an Indo-Pacific region uh, that uh, uh, with with a growing range of common security threats, many of which are related to to Chinese ambition, uh, Chinese reach, um, and Chinese expeditionary capabilities. So, in your paper, you recommend that the U.S. support India's rise, quote, as a counter as a constructive global leader and counterweight to China's influence, unquote. But the Sino-Indian relationship has its own internal logic, and India's considerations with regard to China, with whom it shares a land border, are different from the U.S.'s considerations. So, how much of a counter influence to to China does India want to be, and? Uh, what sense are you getting uh, from people in the administration and your colleagues on this question? How much of a counter influence does China uh, does India want to be to China? I think there's a recognition that China, India will um, will manage its relationship with China in its own way, uh, in ways that are sometimes uh, that sometimes strike Americans as curious. I mean, in the, with the recent uh, with the recent border. Uh, tensions and dispute. It was, I think, notable to many Americans how little the Indian government said, um, how quiet and opaque it was. Uh, but I think we understand India's um, compulsions. It's its economic r- relationship. It's the long-term uh, view of uh, managing its relationship with uh, a rising power next door. Uh, that all makes uh, some sense. Uh, you know, I I think there has there has been for some time a, a deeper logic for U.S. engagement with India, uh, uh, probably best articulated by by Ashley Tellis, although by others as well, which is that a, a strong India is likely to be good for uh, ensuring a favorable balance of power in Asia. Uh, that doesn't mean it has to be an allied India or even a deeply aligned India, although an aligned India would, from Washington's point of view, be welcome. But a strong India uh, that um, uh, that manages its affairs um, as a liberal democracy, um, as a responsible power, is going to be good for the region. And I think this logic still uh, holds. It still obtains. Um, some of the some of the concerns uh, in Washington and in capitals around the world about the degradation of uh, Indian democracy and its liberal traditions um, are concerning, in part because it uh, might over time call into question uh, the kind of country that a, a rising and strong India uh, might be in the region. Um, but I, you know, I, I think the the, com- the calls for thinking about uh, U.S. Uh, India alliance or something more formal are really, really out of place. What the United States wants is a a reasonably aligned um, partner in India that uh, by by itself and acting on on its own interests will prevent uh, Chinese hegemony across the Indo-Pacific. You know, let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges uh, you alluded to 
just now. The Trump administration did not comment on human rights issues in India, ostensibly because it considered these issues internal to India. Of course, there is a view, perhaps more widely held and articulated by the Democrats, that human rights issues are everybody's issues. And we've seen some indication from the Biden-Modi call readout and from comments by Secretary Austin in Delhi this past weekend that democracy, democratic norms, and human rights subjects are not taboo. Is this going to complicate the relationship, given the tendency that the Modi government might have towards shrinking the rights space in India? Uh, it might, on the margins. You know, I think it it made sense that that Secretary Austin uh, raised this issue with his counterparts uh, when he met with them. Uh, it's clear that the Biden uh, administration uh, is making human rights uh, a a priority. Uh, certainly in the way that it talks about U.S. global interests and uh, where the United States looks for for partners. Um, and it has, as you mentioned, flagged its concern regarding India, but uh, a number of other countries as well, where um, the United States has seen uh, concerns about rising the liberalism and a constrained space for, for public dissent. Will this complicate cooperation? As I said, I think it could on the margins in that it makes, for example, the U.S. Congress less likely to, you know, to do the work that it takes to make India, to treat India as an exceptional case. Uh, it makes it less likely that uh, bureaucrats within the U.S. system go out of their way to advocate for India uh, internally when there's a tough issue um, on the table. So I don't think we're at the point of seeing uh, conditionalities imposed with respect to defense sales or exercises or, or anything of that nature. But I do think it's an area of rising concern that will be a consistent part of U.S. messaging in public and private. And if it continues, could erode um, in, in quiet but important ways some of the support for the relationship that's that's required to uh, to move into uh, deeper areas of cooperation. Right. And we all already saw a letter from Senator Menendez before Secretary Austin visited India, asking him to raise uh, issues around democracy in India, but also asking him to discuss another a prickly issue in the relationship, uh, the Russian uh, missile defense system, the S-400. India is scheduled to start receiving this uh, system later this year. And, you know, it could mean a major setback for the relationship if the U.S. imposes sanctions on India for this. Do you see the U.S. going down this path or will it take the waiver route? It's always uh, dangerous to speculate. Um, if I if I had to speculate, it would be that India does get a waiver, but it's not uh, it's certainly not a, a cut and dry case, uh, either politically or procedurally. Uh, you know, there there are a number of different kinds of of uh, legislation in different domains that uh, that mandate uh, sanctions as penalties, and I think uh, administrations usually have the option to choose. Um, from that, you know, from these menus, sanctions that are pro forma um, really don't have a, um, a meaningful uh, economic effect. But I think in this case, even a decision to apply uh, pro forma sanctions or sanctions that have really minimal na um, economic impact would be damaging to the relationship. 
uh, to the trust and to the progress uh, that have been established between the two countries. Uh, the United States does not have to confront this immediately, but presumably will have to do so soon um, uh, if and when India takes delivery of the uh, of the S-400. And this is, as I mentioned a moment ago, one of these areas where uh, India's um, uh, sort of backsliding on its uh, sort of democratic and liberal commitments um, might matter uh, within the U.S. Uh, bureaucracy and within the, the Congress. You know, the, the longer term concern for the United States uh, about systems like the S-400 is that they do preclude deeper cooperation on um, uh, sensitive networked platforms. You know, India, for its own political reasons and bureaucratic reasons, has built uh, what I've called the motley force. Uh, you know, a few aircraft from this country, a few aircraft from that country, uh, a piecemeal force. And that uh, can work reasonably well for defense systems of previous generations. It can work decently well for uh, the modern era. But if you look into the future 20 or 30 years in which countries are going to want to network uh, their systems, their um, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance, their air platforms, their ground units, their naval systems, their space assets, and uh, in a way that gives them a holistic picture of the battlefield and ability to respond, in such an environment, it's much harder to build a motley force that integrates well. And that, I think, is a concern of the United States for India, but should also be a concern for Indian planners as they think about the kind of uh, adversaries they may be confronting in coming decades. Interesting. I just want to talk a little bit about the South Asia neighborhood. So the Taliban on Friday warned of consequences if the U.S. doesn't meet a May 1st troop withdrawal deadline. Um, if you were you know, in your formal role in former role in the White House now, what would your advice be to the administration on the peace settlement and U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan? There, there are no good options here. Uh, the, uh, you know, the options as they had been framed were to uh, to leave by May first, which I think is is now um, unlikely. Uh, and I think we all uh, could anticipate that that could. Uh, lead to some very, very bad outcomes uh, rather quickly. Uh, another option would be to stay at the, the current force levels of about 2,500, uh, in which case I think one might expect that the Taliban would again start uh, targeting U.S. forces and would constrict the security bubble uh, closer and closer around Kabul. Uh, and the third option uh, is to try to negotiate some kind of extension to the May 1st deadline, uh, the deadline that was in the agreement from last February. Uh, you know, the the Biden team, it, it appears, is trying to get out of this um, uh, awkward conundrum by proposing a, a fourth option, which is mobilizing the uh, sort of diplomatic efforts to engage with regional countries um, and exert pressure on the Taliban for um, a big uh, final settlement agreement over a relatively short time frame. Uh, I share the concerns that have, I think, been best articulated by Laurel Miller and Andrew Watkins uh, in some of their recent writing, uh, that this could actually be quite quite risky. There are serious 
issues between the Taliban and uh, the sort of on, on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, but the Afghan government and a wider group of Afghan elites and civil society leaders that will be difficult to bridge um, in a, a rapid kind of negotiation subject to strong external pressure. And that I think the the better approach, even though it, it you know it too does not have great chance of success, would be to use this same format of uh, engaging regional countries to try to get the Doha Doha, Doha negotiating process accelerated um, uh, back on track, and uh, to some extent time bound, uh, but not at the the breakneck speed that appears to be uh, envisioned by this new effort. Um, so that I think is is where where we are we are at, and we don't have a clear sense yet from the Taliban uh, how willing they might be to um, to revise uh, their understanding of the February agreement. I think the United States is certainly going to make the case um, in public, as I'm sure it, it is in private, that uh, the Taliban haven't fully met all of their obligations under that agreement. You know, it's hard to talk about Afghanistan and not talk about Pakistan. Given the country's crucial role in the Afghan peace process, there's some concern in India that the Biden administration would walk back the relatively tough policies of the Trump administration with regard to Pakistan. How do you see the Biden administration negotiating its relationship with Pakistan? Pakistan does have an important role in the Afghan peace process. I'm not sure I would call it crucial. Um, it's important in the sense that they have, I think, made made modest but meaningful efforts to uh, to get the Taliban to the table um, through the release of Mullah Baradar, uh in particular, uh, and they have been broadly supportive. It's also true that they, uh, if they were not supportive of that peace process, I'm confident they could have found ways to to muck it up. Um, but their influence, I think, over the Taliban is is relatively limited and has been diminishing in recent years. When the Biden team looks at Pakistan, I imagine that they they see very few independent decisions that about Pakistan that are on their docket. Uh, the decisions that they have to make are in many ways dependent on uh, what happens over the next you know, few months and year in Afghanistan. Um, their, uh, their decisions are not about uh, Pakistan as such. It is, in my view, very encouraging, very positive to hear uh, something of a new uh, discourse coming from Islamabad, uh, the focus on economic security and, and regional peace. You know, I think we should we should welcome this. This is the kind of uh, broad uh, political discourse that uh, you know, I think many of us have wanted to hear from Pakistan for a long time. That said, the economic upside for the United States in engaging with Pakistan is still quite modest. And until some of the underlying security issues are addressed related to um, international uh, terrorist groups and regional militancy, it's hard to see uh, the United States, uh, you know, embracing in a big way uh, Pakistan in, in, you know, in a way that it's been uh, reluctant to do. Uh, the final thing I would say is that many people seem to have assumed that uh, the United States will. Uh, um, will not really need Pakistan very much um, in the future for counterterrorism purposes. Uh, and in, in many ways, I think it's it's quite possible uh, that the United States might find that it has greater dependencies on Pakistan. Uh, this would be the case if 
if things go well in Afghanistan and there's a peace agreement, U.S. troops uh, depart, um, there are going to be uh, significant requirements for keeping track of militant groups in Afghanistan and the region. And we'll need to consult closely with Pakistan on that. If things really go south, uh, then and the security environment worsens dramatically in Afghanistan, we'll probably similarly be talking to the Pakistanis about what we can do together on issues of common interest. So in that sense, I think the the counterterrorism issues for the foreseeable future will remain at the heart of the relationship, uh, but they will be really shaped by um, the situation in Afghanistan rather than uh, likely taking a, a big independent look at where we stand in the relationship with Pakistan. Well, it's been a very interesting and enlightening discussion. Josh White, thanks for your time and for sharing your views with us today. It's been a pleasure. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by the Hindu. We'll see you soon.